0: Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible.
1: It's so- And as we come to 1 Kings tonight, we read three chapters on Tuesday night, 15, 16, and 17. 15, 16 is like the road trip where you just go by all those towns because it's six kings from the north that were all bad kings. It's the descendants of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's no good kings in the northern kingdom. They progressively get worse. It's this conspiracy, this assassination, and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, when they got to the sixth king, that's Omri, and he was, such a, he was a very powerful king. And he's actually mentioned in extra-biblical archaeological records. He's mentioned by the, in the Moabite records, and he's also mentioned in the Assyrian records. And the Assyrians, of course, eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's fascinating to me that Omri, the father of Ahab, was that renowned that not only do we have the record of him in the Bible by the Holy Spirit, but we have archaeological records that mention him as well as being a powerful and a crafty king. In fact, we're told by the Holy Spirit that none did evil more than Amri up to that time. But if that's not enough, his son came to power, Ahab. And remember, he's an Israelite. We're told in the back part of chapter 16, he married Jezebel, a Lebanese woman, and she worshipped Baal, and she was a powerful woman. She was a princess, so it's one of those political marriages that happen like we see in human history. And her influence of Baal will override his any faith that he would have had in Jehovah the God of Israel because bad company corrupts good morals and that always happens that way and that's just the way it works so in this background the seventh king now reigns in the in the north Ahab and Ahab and Jezebel are going to dominate the scripture for weeks to come verse by verse and also topically because God chose to let us know more, know a lot about him, probably more than we want to know. And with that in mind, we pick it up in chapter 17, verse 1, because Elijah is the light in the darkness, and he is the response, God's response to a dark time spiritually, morally, geopolitically. So chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. This is the introduction to us of Elijah. There's no buildup like, like with Samson, you know, the angel comes to his parents and says, you are gonna have this kid, he's gonna be amazing, he's gonna be a Nazarene." We don't get any buildup. Arguably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament just shows up. He's a Tishbite from Gilead. That's the other side of the Jordan River. And he just shows up on the scene and there's no resume of introduction. He just shows up and makes one statement and changes the course of Israel history and is introduced to us as this amazing person in the Bible. So here's Elijah. And the first thing we need to think about just in general is where he came from, which I just mentioned, but who he is in the big scope of the panoramic of the Bible itself. Because when Jesus was confronted about various things with the religious leaders. He said, don't think I came to cancel the law that God gave in the Old Testament through Moses, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And even when Jesus, after he was resurrected in Luke 24, when he appeared to the apostles, he opened their understanding to the scriptures to understand the, the Psalms, the law, and the prophets. So essentially, we divide our Old Testament in those three categories. The historical books. Genesis through Esther, the poetic books, Job through Ecclesiastes, and then the prophetic books, starting with Isaiah, all the way till um, Malachi. Yeah, Malachi. So that's how we divide our Old Testament, because that's how Jesus divided the Old Testament. And in this division, when we say the prophets, when we say the law, we think of Moses. When you think the poetic books, we can think Solomon, Solomon with Proverbs or David with Psalms. But when you say the prophet... We really tend to associate it not so much with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, those guys, but the one who doesn't have a book, Elijah. Because Elijah goes beyond just this introduction and how he's going to be in our narrative for the coming weeks. In the New Testament, actually before the Old Testament is done, in Malachi, we're told that before the great day of the Lord, Elijah will come. So there's a promise in the scripture around 400 BC, so 500 400 years after the life of Elijah, that he will return. And he will return before the great day of the Lord when the kingdom is established, all the promises in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ and his reign on planet Earth. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, the priest, and announced to him this miracle son who had become John the Baptist, he said, your son will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah. And so profound was this ministry that when Jesus was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah showing up bodily, like from another from the other dimension of eternity, they're there with him. And Peter, John and James were there as they went down the mountain. They they asked Jesus, why did the scripture say that John? That uh, Elijah has to come. but Like, we don't understand because we just saw Elijah. They knew this was Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And the father said, this is my son. Hear him. And, and Jesus said, I tell you, he's already come. But he was, if you can receive it, he's not, he was not received. But he's not talking that John the Baptist was a reincarnation of Elijah. But he came in the spirit and the power like Elijah. And then ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we're told of these two super prophets and no matter how one would interpret the book of revelation and there are different uh, interpretations that people have of the book of revelation of Jesus Christ there's no doubt that there's two super prophets at the end of the age and they do the signs that the signs and wonders of Elijah because Elijah does have signs and wonders and Moses so a lot of people think Moses and Elijah come back before Jesus comes back at the end of the age the second coming other people think that maybe it's Enoch not Moses but Enoch and Elijah but most people think it's Elijah and one of the reasons for that is, we'll see soon enough, that Elijah didn't die. He he was caught up to be with the Lord, the famous story of Elijah's chariot. And I'll teach more on that when we get to it, because God gave me a vision of that. That was quite clear and quite profound that many of you heard me tell. But I definitely believe God showed me how that works in the realm of dimensions and how the chariot came for Elijah. And when we get there... In 2 Kings, I'll cover that in greater detail. Probably a topical study, actually. So when we think about Elijah, he comes to us from Gilead. He's from this this town that no one really knows where it's at, because no one really knows where that town is at. But the region we know is on the other side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan. And he didn't die. 400 years after, he was caught up. We're told that he's going to come before the Lord. Zacharias is told his son John is a type of, of Elijah, Jesus was glorified with Elijah and Moses. And then Revelation tells us that this prophet's there who fits the billing of Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And so it's worth getting the panoramic look at Elijah as we come to him in the context here tonight. Because we need to know who he is, and he's going to be a part of our text for certainly weeks to come. And he is the light that shines in a dark time. And it's been said that the, in the darkest of times, the bright light shines brightest, Right a city on a hill with the light of the world, all those things that Jesus said, and Elijah is that guy. So in the midst of going from bad king to bad king to bad king to bad king to bad king, all of a sudden he shows up with the worst of all the kings, because we're told that Ahab was even worse than his dad, Omri, and here's Elijah. And as he shows up, we we have these stories in chapter 17, and, and there's actually, they're connected But there's different applications. So tonight, as we get into our topical look at his life, I really want to just take some lessons from his life. Rather than just breaking down one segment of the scripture and focusing on that, like this is the whole topical, and even trying to, you know, try and make it all connect, I would rather just teach like I do sometimes things that we learn from each one of these stories in this chapter and, and receive them and take them in light of our current timeline when we're alive and what the Lord have for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So in these first couple verses that I read, this first verse, chapter 1, he he appears before Ahab, the most powerful man in Israel. He's the king of the north. And he's the son of the the most previous powerful king that we have other writings about. And so he he comes to him, and this is what he says. This is the opening sentence. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word." Now, the book of James tells us that the the prayer of a righteous man availeth much and that Elijah with a nature like ours prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. We'll come back to that with his prayer for the widow's son about the the power of Elijah's prayer. But this story is recorded for us in the New Testament as an encouragement for all of us to be people of great expectation and great faith and, and people that with prayer in the church, the early church that can move mountains. And we'll come to that, but it's worth noting this is the context of James here. But what gets me in this part is how he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Think about that. Before whom I stand. See, if we stand before the Lord, we won't be afraid to stand before men. If we bow before the Lord and see the Lord, we won't need to bow before men and see them. Either God's on the throne or man's on the throne. Kind of like we say, you have a uh, a big problem and a small God, or a big God and a small problem. But faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So in in keeping the perspective in time, space, and matter of eternity over all, we need to constantly be filling our mind with the word of God, the promises of God, spending time in his presence. Meditating upon God, letting God confirm things to us by His presence, by His Spirit, to be still and know that He's the Lord. And Elijah was that kind of guy because when he stands before the most powerful man in all Israel, he's the most powerful man. Again, he controls a uh, landmass the size of Los Angeles County, Riverside County, and Orange County, for sure, the Northern Kingdom. All of its resources, all of its wealth. He's one that taxes everybody. They built the, the, the new Samaria where the capital is, and they're at war with the southern kings in Judah. And his dad was a bad dude, and he scared people. And he's the son of a bad dude. It's not like Solomon and Rehoboam, but it's similar in a different way. And, and this is that Ahab, and his, his wife is super radical. She's like this scary, scary radical, powerful woman, and intimidating her presence and intimidating people and these two together were a power couple, and they're all doing their sin. They're all worshiping Baal. In fact, so dark is the moral fiber of the people at this time, God's people in the north. Remember, God gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. Man, they were set up for success, and when they rebelled against God, they were doomed for failure because that's what they chose. But later on, When Ahab, excuse me, when Elijah says to the Lord, I'm the only one left, the Lord says, no, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in this landmass, at this time, there's a remnant. And Elijah, as he comes before Ahab, he's the voice of the remnant. He's actually the voice of sanity, of common sense, of critical thinking, of proper worldview in a universe created by Christ for Christ and held together in Christ he's the voice of sanity in the midst of insanity because when people start taking their clothes off and acting like animals before Baal it's just all insanity and anything goes and if you remove the ancient boundaries and the landmarks of God's words of absolute right and wrong truth and falsehood then it's just insanity so There's a remnant of people who are surrounded by the majority of people who act like that, who are insane in their false worship. There's 7,000 of them, but they're all on the down low. They're hanging low. They're laying low. They're scared. They're scared to raise their voice. They're scared to put their post out there or comment on social media. They're scared. They're scared to be woke, broke, and canceled. They're scared of the algorithm. They're scared of Big Brother. They're scared of... (laughs) just about everything. They're scared, and they're on the down low, but their hearts are not yoked to Baal. Their hearts are yoked to Jehovah, the living God, as the Lord God of Israel lives, is what Elijah says. His introduction, just how does this happen? Like, you know, like there's just crazy things. The story of Brian McDaniel, our good friend who does ministry in Haiti, before the president of Haiti was assassinated, he had a divine appointment with Brian McDaniel, just a week or two before that, and Brian gave him a Bible. And this whole conversation happened, and it's just like, how does that happen? Where suddenly, like, you're talking to the president of Haiti, and you're the one doing the ministry for Jesus in Haiti. It can happen. Like I said, President Clinton walked by me when he was the president when he was at the governor's convention in 1995 in Vermont. I didn't talk to him, but I was closer to him than I am to Clyde right now in the front row. I was like, that's the president of the United States. And so here we go, and, and we've seen in human history, and we've seen even in the news in times past where someone will speak up and they'll reprove a president, they'll reprove a governor, they'll reprove someone publicly, and, and usually those people who are in power and are, you know, seized power and are antichrist in their power, they'll try and talk down or shame or humiliate or embarrass those people that are calling them out. That's pretty common. I mean, John the Baptist called out Herod the Tetrarch for stealing his brother's wife. And it got him in jail, right? So for Elijah to come up and speak up in this situation, it shows, it shows some fiber, it shows some courage, and that's really what we see here in the first thing. Before whom I stand. See, if we, in a, in a challenging generation with shifting goalposts all the time, the playing field's changing all the time, and the society's redefining right, wrong, truth, false, and all that, but God hasn't changed, so we know that he's the same yesterday and forever, and we know his word is absolute. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. So, in our time across planet Earth, there's an innumerable amount of people. Obviously, there's 8 billion people on planet Earth now. When Elijah was alive, there was nowhere near those numbers. There's much less human beings. So, proportionally, 7,000 people is a lot more than what we would think of now. But still, they were the minority. And they were a terrified minority. So, they're on the down low. But God called Elijah. And you see... He stood with boldness. And it's just a reminder to us from Elijah, when you're the remnant and you're a minority in a land of chaos under Baal and people who worship Baal and their powers about Baal, just remember, stand before the Lord before you stand before men. Stand before the Lord before you stand before men. Get your focus right. Get your cadetoscope right. See Jesus high and lifted up. You know, Isaiah in his book he says, woe was this, and woe was that, and woe was this. And he gets to chapter five, and he goes, well, woe was me, because I've seen the Lord. And once he saw the Lord, and the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, it was all over. And that guy did whatever God called him to do, and they sought him in half before his life was done. He Once you've seen the Lord, and you stood before the Lord, you don't need to fear men. That's why people who have had near-death experiences, or they've been through great tragedy, and they've seen the Lord bring them through that, they're not moved. They're not moved by the intimidation of men. After Jeremy Camp lost his wife, his first wife, Melissa, I would admire his boldness because you can't shut a man up who was married for four months and buried his wife, the bride of his youth. And if he's telling you about the way it is with Jesus, and you're going to listen to it, but you're certainly not going to shut him up. Because I was in the room when Jesus came for his wife, and so was he. And the last thing she said is, I'm healed, and then she slept in eternity. You can't, you're not going you to, he was like unstoppable. I mean, forget the five songs that went. Number one, Jeremy Camp was like Elijah and he filled all these places for the next three, four years with his songs and the rest is history. But you can't tell someone who's touched eternity that way, that, that deep, that hurt, that wounded, that he can't tell you the truth because he's going to tell you the truth. And that's sometimes the benefit of great heartache and sorrow and tragedy is a great Boldness or near-death experiences where you feel like, hey, I died as a bullet. Everything I got right now is bonus time. A guy that works on our homes in Florida, Victor, he's a really neat guy, and I've had great conversations with him. He's a handyman. He can fix anything, and he he does. He's a great guy, and I've had some good conversations with him, but he dropped dead a couple years ago. He's like 63 now, and he dropped dead because he's always like, whistle while you work. (laughs) Like, there's never a bad day for Victor. And we love Victor. Everyone loves Victor. You know, he's the handyman you can trust when you own properties. But the guy's like, he goes, every day is a gift because I was dead. I stopped breathing. I came back to life. It's all a gift. The grandkids are in Atlanta. I go visit them sometimes, and I get to come work on this house today, and it's all good. Once you've been with the Lord, once you've seen eternity, once you've seen his glory, it just gives you a whole different perspective. And the older you get, the more, the, the less you should be inclined to fear men anyways, because, you know, like, hey, you're going to be seeing the Lord. I remember my father-in-law were out to dinner a few years before he died, and I had a great relationship with Bill. We were at this restaurant in Encinitas, and Donald Trump came on the TV. And my father-in-law is a very profound Democrat. He worked for all the top ones as a l- lawyer and all this stuff. He's like, ah, Donald Trump. And he couldn't breathe. Like, he was so worked up. And we're there at the grandkids. And, and he's like, and you got everyone else going that, that side of the family. And I said, hey, Bill, you know what? You're gonna go into eternity really soon. And you're gonna leave that guy behind, or you're gonna stand before Jesus. And you should start thinking more about Jesus than Donald Trump. Now, Bill's an intelligent man. In fact, he was a genius. And I'll never forget what he did. He stopped, because he was sitting here, and I was sitting there and he goes, You're right. You're right and he received it and he never talked a political conversation with me again the rest of his life and all he's ever talked about was Jesus going to heaven the nuns who spanked him for being naughty when he went to Catholic school and that I was friends with St. Peter and he was quite certain he'd see me with Peter when he got to heaven that's what he'd us as he, you know, he had Alzheimer's and all that stuff even at the end when I ministered to him on his deathbed and he still was cognizant with me but with no one else during COVID I'm like Jesus is coming for you and he's like yeah See, once you've seen the Lord, it doesn't even matter who you see on TV. That's why we need to see the Lord. We need to stand before the Lord. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him lifted up. We need to see him in his glory and put perspective on all the people who are trying to beat down the church or beat down you, whether they're doing it just because they don't like you or they just hate Christians or they just think you're not in line with their worldview. They're prophets of Baal. We need to stand before the Lord. And once we stand before the Lord, we'll be emboldened and we'll have courage. When they were stoning Stephen, when he stood before the Lord, the first death of a believer in the early church, what did he say? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He was standing bold before the Lord, and he saw Jesus standing for him while he was standing bold. So we're reminded by Elijah. It's kind of like if it was baseball, the first pitch he threw right behind the guy's head. I'm here. I'm not backing down. I own the inside of the plate. I own the whole plate. Like, you, we come from authority. Jesus is the final authority. And yet the church so often is trepid and fearful and impotent. Christ didn't die on the cross, rise from the grave, and ascend the right hand of the Father and give the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost so we can all be fearful they have in Jezebel. We're not at war with them. We're praying for them. But we want to let them know, man, we stand before the Lord, the living God. And by the way, it's not going to rain for the next few years because God rules over you and he rules over the affairs of men. We're reminded by Elijah to be bold because the spirit of Elijah is boldness and courage in the face of intimidation and bullying. And he just walked right in, boom, boom, mic drop, and walked away. And if you know what that is, you know what it is. It basically means there's nothing more to say. I just said it all. Now, we don't know if Ahab's like, who is this guy? Or it happened like on a parade when he's waving hands and kissing babies, you know, like, oh, what was that? What did that guy just say? Is not going to rain. <laughs> yeah, once, it, once there was a drought and there's no rain, you're like, what was that guy's name again? Who's that guy from Gilead? Yeah, go find him, because that's where it's going. But Elijah reminds us to be bold. Then we also see in verses 2 through 7, we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan River. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Because he had prayed there'd be no rain, and I'd pray there'd be no rain and I pray there would be no rain and i do not have any water. But the Lord obviously was in control. In the first thing that we looked at tonight in application with his courage, it was Elijah with Ahab standing before the Lord. The second thing is Elijah and the ravens before a drying up brook. This is interesting because the Lord told him, get away from here, go east. Hide. So get away, hide. So there's a time when you walk in Ahab's space and you declare the way it is. There's a time when you do, you are on the down low. In the book of Acts, it's the same thing. Herod, one of the Herods, he kills James the apostle. He beheads him. And it makes everybody happy who hates Christians. Then he grabs Peter to do the same to Peter. But the angel of the Lord delivers Peter from the prison. And Peter escapes. And what do they do? They, they hide Peter away. Also in the book of Acts, Paul, who is incredibly bold under various circumstances, during the riot in Corinth, or in Ephesus, they they want to... Attack, a whole mob's worked up, and he wants to go and tell the mob the way it is. He's 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 going to tell them and set, you know explain to them theology with Jesus. And the the leader's just like they're going to kill you. You can't go there, and they hid him away. There is a time to just lay low.
0: You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.